Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Scott L. Friedman, MD. He's the Dean for Therapeutic Discovery, uh, the Fishberg Professor of Medicine, Professor of Pharmacologic Sciences, uh, the Chief in the Division of Liver Diseases. And we're going to be talking about uh, his research and uh, you know the things he's working on and how that's relevant to today. And He's part of the Icon School of Medicine at uh, Mount Sinai. So, Scott, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Richard. Great to be here. Yeah, so are you more of a physician or physician scientist, or are you teaching into peer research? Like, What, what are your activities these days? Um, I would qualify my skills as mostly physician scientists now. So I spent uh, most of my career seeing patients and doing lab research um, in the last five, or year, five years or so. My administrative roles enlarged, and so I gave up patient care, but I'm still deeply involved in designing clinical trials, overseeing a clinical program. Uh, it's something that doesn't leave you even if you're not at the bedside. Okay. What's some of the current trials that you're, um, you're shepherding through the process? Well, it would be worth backing up a little bit, and let me just give you a bit of context for your listeners, if that's okay. Okay, sure. Uh, so my interest is in uh, why the liver gets scarred or liver fibrosis. Uh, this is a consequence of chronic liver injury from a variety of insults, and uh, the most common around the world are hepatitis B, hepatitis C, uh, alcohol excess, and increasingly something called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and all of these illnesses are chronic, smoldering, inflammatory states of the liver, often with no symptoms. Uh, but during that time, there's progressive inflammation that uh, stimulates scarring and ultimately can lead in a subset of patients to very advanced scarring of the liver known as cirrhosis. And so, um, you know, I've been at this now since 1984. And in those days, it was hard to envision that we would make it to clinical therapies, but in fact, uh, collectively, the field has uncovered a vast body of knowledge around how the liver scars, what the cells are that are involved, what are the signals, and from that has emerged the prospects of treating inflammation and scarring in the liver to prevent progression to cirrhosis. And one other consequence of uh, advanced scarring or cirrhosis is the risk of liver cancer. And so we're you know, highly aware of the long-term consequences of cirrhosis, not just being the loss of liver function and a lot of complications, but also heightening the risk year over, year over year for the emergence of primary liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma. And so one yeah, of the prospects... Um, oh, quick, quick, uh, quick, quick question. I've heard the liver is um, very regenerative, much more than pretty much any other organ, I guess, except you know, skin. Um, are any of these right. conditions uh, positively impacted by the liver's ability to regenerate, or does that kind of, uh, is that overwhelmed by these conditions? Um, mostly the latter, but I think the inherent regenerative capacity of the liver, which is far in excess of any other organ, explains why most patients with chronic liver disease 
have this what I call smoldering disease that's not even symptomatic for the bulk of their illness. Um, so in typically when patients have a chronic liver disease, it will progress to an advanced scarring state in 20, 30 years, sometimes shorter, but often that interval. Similar kinds of uh, inflammatory diseases of the lung can progress to lung failure in the matter of three to five years. So I think what's happening in the liver that's unique is uh, all the time when there's chronic inflammation, either from viruses or other causes, you have this uh, compensatory regenerative response that's trying to restore the normal architecture in a way that's unique to liver. And that explains why some patients never progress to cirrhosis. In fact, probably most will never progress to cirrhosis. But even among those who do, it takes decades on, on average. And that's all a reflection of the fact that while that's going on, the liver is still exercising its regenerative capacity. We believe finally at the very end of you know decades, the liver's capacity to regenerate is ultimately exhausted. And that's really when scar simply takes over and uh, drives the liver to fail or to generate hepatocellular carcinoma. So to return to your original question, uh, knowing what we know now that we didn't know years ago, we can begin to envision therapies for scarring diseases of the liver, much as is being done in parallel for other organs like kidney and lung. In the case of liver, uh, the main uh, fibrotic or scarring disease that is targeted by pharmaceutical companies is the one called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And this is a, a disease of very rapidly rising proportions worldwide. Uh, it's really part of a, a body, a full body syndrome known as the metabolic syndrome. So it's not just isolated liver problems, but rather the fat inflammation and scarring that occurs in these patients is part of uh, a syndrome that includes typically type two diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, hyperlipidemia. And in that context, there are a number of problems that arise. And often the liver is overlooked because Physicians and patients are more concerned about blood pressure or lipid control, but uh, in fact, these fatty liver disease patients need to be treated in some cases, and that's really where the focus is right now. So there are probably over 100 companies that are developing targeted therapeutics to stop either fat accumulation, inflammation, scarring, or all of the above, um, and there are... Go ahead. A question about the liver itself. So I've heard it called NAFLD. Right, non alcoholic right. fatty liver disease. Is the liver, does it have a lot of fibrosis? Is it, is it scarred or is it fatty or is it both? And does it matter uh, if it's uh, one's more than the other? Right. So it's a really good question, Richard. It depends on the stage. So, in, um, in aggregate, patients who have fat in their liver, whether or not they have inflammation or scarring, are considered to have non alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD. So that's an umbrella term. And within NAFLD, there are really two general or three general stages. The first and probably the most common is fat alone. Fat alone in the liver is not a cause for concern, although some of those patients may ultimately develop inflammation and scarring. So that's simply called non-alcoholic fatty liver. The second term under the umbrella of NAFLD is NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And the third would be cirrhosis. And so uh, it's those patients in the second group, the patients who have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, that are the ones who are being targeted for therapy because they have fat, they have inflammation, and they have scar. So what are some of the correlations that have been discovered so far? Well, you know, what, who tends to get fat in their liver and why? And then who tends to get NASH? And then who tends to you know, end up in cirrhosis? Right. So some of that we know and some of it we don't know. 
those who tend to have fat in the liver are the ones that I mentioned that have the other risk factors, obesity, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. Um, there are some rare forms of uh, fat in the liver, but if we restrict our discussion to the more, much more common, it would be patients with that profile have one or more of the features of the so-called metabolic syndrome. Now, what's interesting is we don't really have a good handle on why some patients only have fat, which never requires treatment in, for the liver, and other patients progress to NASH and beyond. There are clearly some genetic determinants, uh, although not too many have been validated yet, that suggests that your genetic complement might put you at higher risk for getting the inflammation and fibrosis once you've developed the fat. Two of the more common ones, one is called PMPLA3, is a gene whose one of the variants is associated with fatty liver disease. And that risk variant is particularly common in uh, Latinos uh, who have a high allele frequency or a high gene frequency. Um, and that gene frequency or that risk allele not only puts patients at higher risk for disease when they have uh, NASH, but also if they drink alcohol to excess. There's another gene that was discovered uh, more recently called HSB, HSD17B13, which whose function is not well known, but that's also, and then there are a couple of others, TM6SF2, um, MBOAT7, it doesn't matter what the names are, but in aggregate, the risk of progressing from just fat to a more advanced stage may in part depend on your genetic makeup. Uh, it may also depend on whether you have diabetes. So the presence among the clinical features of the metabolic syndrome, the one that more closely predicts risk of fibrosis is, not, is uh, type 2 diabetes. So we, we tend to have an even higher level of uh, concern for diabetics who have fat in the liver because they know they're at higher risk for also having that associated with SCAR. So it appears that uh, you know, there's a lot more to diabetes, at least, than meets the eye. It involves the liver pretty strongly. And the liver Absolutely. gets fatty, and then you know, have, have you have you or other people you know looked at livers, you know, from autopsies from patients, uh, and looked is the fat accumulated in a certain pattern in a certain part of the liver, you know, the top, the bottom, is it striped yeah. throughout? Is there any, I don't know, is there any interesting uh, structural components to the fat or the or the scarring? Um, the short answer is that the liver is fairly homogeneous in distribution of fat. At a microscopic level, it tends to be a little bit more towards the uh, outflow of the vascular unit known as the centrizonal area of the sinusoid. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's diffusely distributed. And, no, no, uh, and we don't need to do autopsies to determine that. We do liver biopsies not infrequently, and that will certainly give us a good picture of the fat in the liver. But beyond that, there's now very good non-invasive methods that can quite accurately quantify the amount, and also assess the distribution of fat in the liver. Those include uh, MR spectroscopy and also something called MR fat fraction. So they're both uh, MRI-based technologies. There's also a device that we use at the bedside in our practices or in the patients in the hospital that is called a, a CAP score, continuous attenuation parameter. And it's part of an evaluation that we do routinely uh, along with something to assess liver stiffness known as a fibro scan. So we have a very good uh, ability to quantify, detect and quantify fat in the liver using these uh, imaging techniques. What we can't tell with them very easily is how much scarring and inflammation is associated with that fat. Hmm. So there's no way to correlate with the degree of fat or, I mean, does it have, I guess it's in bands. Does it, you know, does the liver look like a, like a steak? You know, does the fat appear in, 
a natural pattern? Does it, it appear in a very natural. strange pattern? Uh, it, the, the texture of the liver grossly to the to the eye, not just microscopically, looks very different. It looks fatty. Instead of being brown, um, it looks yellowy, glisteny. Uh, and then if you do microscopic biopsies, you can see that the main cells in the liver, the hepatocytes, are stuffed with fat. So the fat is is inside the cells of the liver, but it's so, uh, so uh, diffused throughout the organ that it makes the entire organ look uh, more yellowish and fatty. So... You know, looking at it from a physiology perspective, does it affect, you know, drainage of the liver? Does it uh, slow processing time of, of alcohol or other foods? I mean, what right. has anyone been able to somehow study, you know, how does a fatty liver work versus a non-fatty liver? You know, what's so different about it in its function? Yeah, really good question. Um, so uh, for one thing, we know that fatty livers don't regenerate as well. And that has direct clinical implications because... Uh, one of the miraculous things that our surgeons can do now is uh, not just liver transplant from uh, the deceased, but also what are called living-related uh, donor transplants. So um, a healthy, ostensibly healthy donor can choose to give up a piece of his or her liver to a recipient uh, whose liver is failing. Now, what we've been seeing is more and more when we screen those donors and make sure to make sure they have a healthy liver, it turns out that many of them have uh, undetected or previously undetected fatty liver themselves. We know that that kind of a liver is not suitable. First of all, it will not be as easy for the, the donor to tolerate the resection, but it, putting in a fatty liver into a recipient is a prescription for real problems. And one of the things uh, also that surgeons will do routinely is assess the liver, uh, any liver, whether whole or a part of a liver for donation or transplantation, they will always assess at least uh, visually to make sure that the liver is not fatty. Uh, a fatty liver not only will not regenerate, it also has a lot of fuel for inflammation. By that, I mean that fat can be broken down and release things called free radicals, reactive oxygen species that are very damaging to cell membranes and structures. And so, um, you know, effectively putting a fatty liver in as a as a piece of donor liver is a prescription for real problems in terms of uh, failing to regenerate and leading to injury of the tissue and often failure of that graft to survive uh, through the transplantation. So uh, that's probably the most obvious consequence of ha having a fatty liver. The other um, important component or risk associated with fatty liver is if you get a second disease or have a second insult to the liver. So for example, if a patient has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and then they start to drink heavily or they get infected with hepatitis B or C, no question that uh, two is worse than one and probably not even additive, but rather synergistic. So that um, fatty liver uh, predisposes patients to having more severe injury if they're exposed to a second insult. Another one that's common besides those that I mentioned is in patients who might uh, take Tylenol uh, and uh, take more than the prescribed amounts, Tylenol, as you may remember, can be very hepatotoxic or liver toxic, but it becomes even more toxic in the setting of a fatty liver. So um, that you know, that's probably a much more common risk than for patients who are undergoing transplantation or thinking of don donating a piece of their liver. But for whatever reason, a fatty liver is not a healthy liver, even if there's not inflammation. Uh, and so uh, we really want to, uh, first of all, treat it if we can, and secondly, avoid 
uh, having that patient develop a second problem in their liver that will be made much worse by the presence of fat. Was there a, a degree of fattiness? Like, is there a Friedman scale of, of liver fattiness or something? You know, you, you'd say you're yeah. one on five in the scale or one out of 10 or two out of 10. Uh, it tends to be semi-quantitative. It's certainly not named after me. I was far from the first person to study it. Uh, but, oh, um, yeah. yeah, I know. I know. Maybe fibrosis, because that's what I've been studying for the last 35 years. But um, it, generally, it's, it, there, are, it, there are different ways to quantify it. You can quantify it as, and the most common is to say what percentage of the liver is fat. Um, and you can do that using one of those imaging tests, particularly MR fat fraction. You can literally say 30% of the, of the liver is fat, 20% is fat. And those tend to be very reliable. Um, and we use those often as benchmarks if we're trying to reduce the fat with a treatment. So we'll say the patient started with 20% liver fat and now they're down to 10% and they had a 50% reduction in liver fat. Those are the kinds of things that we're beginning to lean on as we try to assess whether drugs are having any impact on disease. Yeah, so if someone has, a, I mean, when do you tend to find, when does, when does someone, since it's asymptomatic, at what point do, are people told they have a fatty liver? And again, uh, are there at least three levels? like? severe, moderate, mild, you know, and, and what percentages might correlate with those levels right. if there are any? Um, the levels of fat per se don't necessarily tell us whether they're, whether they're likely to have less or more inflammation. Um, the typical way that patients come to the uh, particular liver specialist is one of two ways. Number one is they have an ultrasound for another reason. They might have belly pain or there's suspicion of gallstone or whatever. An abdominal ultrasound is obtained, and inadvertently, the radiologist will tell the physician and the patient, hey, there's you know, quite a bit of fat in that liver. Um, the other way that uh, patients can be uh, diagnosed or at least detected is they go for routine blood work, and one of their liver tests is slightly abnormal. And um, those are never cause for alarm, but they are cause for, uh, for follow-up and uh, possible further evaluation because... Typically, the liver tests that we see in patients who have inflammation and fibrosis as well as fat, those liver tests are not wildly abnormal. They're typically two or three times normal. So normal can be up to, depending on the lab, it can be up to 30 and it may be 90, it may be 100. Nobody gets alarmed by that. On the other hand, it is a tip-off that there may be something going on uh, and that will merit further evaluation. Now, the problem is that there are also patients who have a lot of fat and inflammation who have normal liver tests. And so we can't very well advocate for doing liver tests as a good screening test and saying that if they have normal liver tests, there's no way they have fat. That can't be said because, in fact, there are ample numbers of patients who just didn't, who simply don't have elevated liver tests that will be a, a clue that there might be underlying liver disease. So the drugs that are being developed, what's, what's the goal? What are their metrics to keep fat at the same level over years or to reduce it well, by certain you know. Right. Uh, the, the, the overwhelmingly most important determinant of whether patients will get into trouble is how much scarring they have. So that's been done in study after study. Uh, while fat can be a tip-off that there's more going on, per se, fat alone does not predict outcome. On the other hand, if you do a liver biopsy, as we do in many patients, um, the amount of scarring they have is direct predictor of how likely they are to get into trouble. And so directly or indirectly, all the treatments that are being developed are with the intention to ultimately reduce the, the deposition of scar, or in some cases when the scar is already very advanced, 
to enhance the degradation or removal of that scar so the liver can either restore or preserve normal function. Um, so it's really, you know, in simple terms, it's all about the fibrosis. And uh, so one doesn't have to attack the fibrosis directly, although that's something I'm very interested in through my own work. One can try to reduce fat and inflammation with the expectation that that will translate into a reduced drive to make more scar. Uh, and that in part may be one of the ways that a drug that's being evaluated now or in the next couple of months by the FDA may actually exert its benefits. So there's a drug um, called uh, obeticolic acid. It was developed by Intercept Pharmaceuticals. Full disclosure, I've worked with Intercept as a consultant off and on over the years. Um, we actually did initial studies in my laboratory um, over 15 years ago when they were barely a company. Um, and we showed that the, the agent in an animal model, a rodent model of scarring, seemed to be very potent. And that led to the company filing what's called an investigational drug application to the FDA and a 15-year course, which I wasn't really involved with, where the company sought and ultimately uh, were able to prove in a placebo-controlled trial that the drug has more effect than a placebo in reducing scarring and inflammation. And so that uh, that's probably going to be the first drug approved. Nobody knows for sure. I certainly don't. Uh, but it's going before an FDA advisory committee in late spring to assess whether they have enough data of efficacy to grant the um, company the approval to market this drug. So that will be, if it happens, that will be the first. There's at least two other drugs that are in so-called phase three trials, which is the most advanced level of study before a drug can be approved. But there are dozens and dozens of drugs still in phase one and phase two uh, that promise to have even more potency than obeticolic acid. Although in the end, uh, it'll you know it'll be up to the clinical trials to establish their efficacy and and the relative potency compared to obeticolic acid. By the way, obeticolic acid is a, a very interesting class of molecules. It's an agonist to us to a specialized type of receptor in the nucleus. The receptor is called Farnesoid X receptor, or it's abbreviated FXR. And uh, the drug obeticolic acid is an FXR agonist. So in other words, it enters the cell, it tickles that receptor, and the events downstream of that receptor being activated are beneficial in preventing or uh, eliminating the stimulus for inflammation and scar. Does anyone, uh, you know, when you look at a healthy liver, does it have any fat in it or just a little bit? And does anyone understand the mechanism by which, you know, hepatocytes or other liver cells would start to accumulate fat? Uh, so to answer your first question, normal liver should not have fat. I mean, there might be a rare droplet, but, you know, basically a normal liver has no fat. Um, but fat can come and go inside the liver very quickly. Uh, so, you know, it's been well shown in years ago in, in experimental studies that if you recruit in those days medical students to drink an alcohol binge and then they agreed to a liver biopsy the next morning, they would have fat as a result of that binge. Uh, and fat can come from the liver from uh, one of two ways. Either the liver makes more fat or the liver acquires more fat through the diet or through circulating lipids that are brought into the liver more than they are leaving. And so um, all, what, what we can say is that the fat in the liver is a very dynamic response and it can change in a matter of hours. One interesting and recent circumstance where that turns out to be very helpful is if we return back to the example I gave you of fatty livers being in, uh, less attractive to use in a, as a donor organ for transplant, 
There's now a uh, actually several technologies, one in particular from Europe that's been written up in the journal Nature. But there are several technologies that say, okay, we if we harvest a liver that we intended to use for transplant, but it's got too much fat, we don't want to throw it out. Uh, so what they're doing is they're putting the, uh, the donor liver, the future donor liver on a pump. They're perfusing it with nutrients. And they're effectively in other things, they're, they're adding more energy substrate and they're also defatting the liver. So it's well known that in a situation like that, you can defat a liver in a matter of hours, uh, which really underscores the point that I'm trying to make, which is fat can come and go very, very quickly, but normal liver should not have fat. You can defat a liver in hours? Like what percentage? Most of it. I couldn't give you an exact number, but the majority of the fat can be removed in a matter of hours if you, uh, if you create uh, conditions for perfusion that lead to the egress of fat from the liver into the perfusing. It's too bad you couldn't uh, sedate someone and um, you know, run their blood through a, a filter and defat their liver you know, in some kind of clinical application. Uh, yes, it's true. We, we don't use it in that setting. Occasionally, there, there are a number of different devices that have been tried over the years. None of them are FDA approved, and they tend to be more popular in Europe and Asia. But in patients who have toxin buildup because their liver is failing, there have been efforts in a number of different what are called liver assist devices um, that can uh, effectively cleanse the, lo- the blood, much like dialysis does for kidney failure. The primary goal of those liver assist devices, however, is not to clear fat, but rather to clear many of the toxic metabolites that ordinarily the liver would break down and excrete. But in the absence of uh, good liver function, you need the machine to do that. Yeah, because the liver breaks down a lot of substances, you know, metabolizes them, do substances tend to have a longer residence time in the liver than maybe other organs or a long enough residence time that it, they're more effective or they more strongly affect the liver, you know, and, and does that bear anything on the, the drugs that are being developed? Yeah, it's a very perceptive question, Richard, because we, uh, when we think about developing drugs that are intended to uh, treat liver disease, one of the arguments that we make, particularly for drugs that are, are broken down in the liver and we don't want them to get to the other organs as much as we'll say, look, if we give this oral agent, it's, taken up by the intestinal cells. It's transported to the liver. It exerts its function within the liver, but it's also degraded. So the amount of drug residual that goes out to the rest of the body is much smaller. And often that creates an opportunity to target drugs to the liver without worrying about the effect of those drugs nearly as much on the organs that are, are elsewhere, kidneys, lung, heart, etc. So we, we, we know, and that's called first-pass metabolism. So the liver you know, our livers evolved this unbelievably complex and orchestrated system for detoxifying things that we put in our mouth that are absorbed. Uh, and this, of course, isn't restricted to the era when man has drugs. If you think about it, um, you know, as our ancestors thousands and thousands of years ago roamed the earth, they picked up a berry and ate it, and there was a toxin in that, in that berry. Uh, they either might die from that or they might evolve systems or be advantaged if they have complex systems to detoxify that berry, you know, fast forward 10,000 years and those berries are now medications. And so uh, particularly for medications that are novel molecular structures and not just natural products, um, the liver really has to depend on this complex system of detoxification to make sure that those drugs don't uh, either damage the liver or damage the rest of the body. Does the liver, I mean, it detoxifies, I guess, by breaking down a chemical into other ones, but does it detoxify by storing? Does it, um, I mean, what other ways can it detoxify? 
That's a good question. It can be detoxified in a number of different ways. It can convert to an inactive metabolite that is then uh, excreted by the liver into the bile. And often those can be, uh, you know, converting from uh, um, what are called uh, lipophilic to lipophobic or compounds that are more water soluble. So one of the major detoxifying mechanisms of the liver is to change the chemistry of the compounds so that they're more easily excreted in the bile. Uh, there can also be chemical reactions that will, that will specifically remove toxic components of, um, of a drug or a substance, um, or it can occasionally store things that if they're um, in excess in the body can cause damage. And the most obvious example is cholesterol. So in principle, you know, the liver stores can store cholesterol often in the form of these fat droplets. In some ways, if the fat never gets out of the liver, it has less opportunity to contribute to atherosclerosis. There are also circumstances where the liver will store toxins like excess metals like iron and copper, which up to an extent the liver can absorb. But it turns out that if you, if you uh, store too much iron and copper, that can lead to diseases primarily of the liver. Have, um, has a fatty liver ever been transplanted from you know, one mouse to another, even a part? And, uh, you know, I guess based on the recipient mouse's diet, have you seen effects? Does that rejuvenate the liver or even just in, you know, a person? Uh, does diet seem to affect the liver tremendously or no? Uh, so let me tackle that one first, which is the diet absolutely can affect the liver. Uh, in the most uh, extreme ways, diet that includes toxic toxins can damage the liver severely. I already mentioned Tylenol or acetaminophen. But it turns out there are some natural substrates uh, that are very toxic. The most well-known is a particular type of mushroom called the amanita mushroom. So it turns out those mushrooms have uh, a poison in them that paralyzes the intracellular machinery of the liver cells. And over the years, there's occasionally misadventures where a family or a group of people go mushrooming. They're not expert. They eat these mushrooms, and they all end up having liver failure. And some actually require liver transplant. So certainly diet in that way, in an extreme way, can affect the liver. But diet can also affect the liver in terms of, you know, having adequate protein and adequate um, minerals and vitamins that are part of a normal, healthy, well-balanced diet. And there are, of course, deficiencies that can affect the liver as well, um, as well as other organs. Most of the essential vitamins uh, can affect the liver and um uh, you know, in general, excess dietary fat ingestion will lead to fat accumulation in the liver. So the, the diet has a, a range of potential effects uh, on normal, healthy liver function, or it can lead to liver disease. Well, early on when you mentioned um, if someone needs to donate a piece of their liver to a family member or a matched donor, or a match, sorry, a matched recipient, it's not good if they have a fatty liver. And then you mentioned that sometimes it can be, um, you know, it can be cleaned out. But, you know, has anyone ever tried, let's say, in mice, uh, taking a piece of one mouse's liver that was fatty, put it into another mouse and, you know, see what happens? And does the, the new mouse, the recipient, you know, defat yeah. the liver or does it, uh, I mean, what happens? No. Yeah. So you probably, I don't know the answer, and I, but I would make an educated guess that if you, if you took a fatty liver in a, uh, in one mouse and you put it into a genetically identical recipient mouse, that it wouldn't function as it might function it wouldn't function as well if that donor liver had been normal um and just to clarify one point defatting of the liver that i mentioned is being done for what are called cadaveric liver donations it's not being done for those 
living related donor segments. Rather, if a potential donor wants to give his or her piece of the liver, typically to a family member, um, if they have fat, they're just not accepted as a donor. One would never resect a fatty piece of liver from a donor and then try to defat it before putting it into a recipient. That wouldn't happen. You just wouldn't do the, the, the transplantation in that setting. Yeah, it's too bad that it couldn't happen. Maybe that, you know, but uh, yeah. That, and it, I yeah, guess, you know, one of the things that, you know, which is, which is done in terms of defatting the liver to allow that kind of transplant is, you know, patients who might be overweight and want to donate, but they have fat are put on, you know, very rigorous uh, medically supervised diets to lose weight and thereby lose liver fat. And then they become suitable donors. That's a much more sensible way of defatting the donor liver, not, not to take it out of a, an overweight person and try to take the fat out using a machine. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Right. Um, what's this doing to the transplant space if, if uh, you know, fatty liver is on the rise? And, uh, you know, it seems like obesity is. That, that seems like it would shrink the available uh, donation space for liver, liver transfers, too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's exactly why these technologies are being developed to try to rescue or restore fatty livers because... Uh, the the donor pool is uh, of healthy livers is going to shrink as more and more of us walk around with uh, too much fat in our livers. Um, so, uh, but on the flip side, the fat and the inflammation in the liver and the the presence of this NASH is becoming so prevalent now that it is probably is or will soon be the leading cause or leading indication for liver transplant around the world. Uh, it certainly is close to that, and but there's an underside that's a happy ending to explain why NASH and probably alcoholic liver disease are becoming the most common indications for transplant. And the happy part of that is, in part, it's because the transplants that were need, that were necessary for patients with hepatitis C are shrinking in number tremendously because we have curative therapies for hepatitis C that promise to eliminate the virus in over 95% of patients. And what's amazing is when you have a patient with, even with cirrhosis, who has hepatitis C, when you cure that patient effectively with the newer antivirals, a sizable fraction of them get regeneration of the liver and the scar can recede. So for all those reasons, NASH is becoming, NASH and alcoholic liver disease is becoming the two most common indications for liver transplant, primarily because their prevalence is going up, but also because the uh, the prevalence of advanced liver disease from the other viral causes is going down. Oh, okay. Well, at least it's not all a net negative. That's good. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. No question. So, the number right. of transplants for Hep C has gone down precipitously in the last five years. Hmm. So, what's the uh, what's the near term future in the next five years? You said a lot of drugs are in clinical trials. I mean, when do you think clinically uh, people are going to have a lot more options available to them, maybe to uh, help with fatty liver and other liver problems? Uh, well, the, as I said, most of the energy is being focused on fatty liver disease. And with one drug approval, more likely than not, and several right behind it, I think the next five years, we're going to completely redefine not only how to treat this disease, but also to refine how to diagnose it. The the gold, so-called gold standard for diagnosis currently is liver biopsy. But that's an invasive test. It can be very informative, and we do quite a bit of it. Quite a bit of uh, quite a number of liver biopsies in our center, but still, we'd like to be able to capture as much information about the liver without biopsy as possible. So there are imaging techniques, there are uh, biochemical techniques. There's lots of different approaches 
that are slowly but surely making headway in our ability to diagnose the stage and the severity of liver disease without having to do liver biopsy. And that's a really critical building block to accelerating clinical trials because uh, we'd like to know as quickly as possible if a drug looks like it's having a benefit without having to wait for the biopsy. And the, the more we get uh, tests, non-invasive tests that can tell us quickly whether a patient is showing benefit from a drug, the quicker we can get those drugs evaluated in large groups and ultimately brought to market if they're safe and effective. Right. So I think the next five years in aggregate is going to see uh, steady incremental um, uh, improvements, some failures along the way, no doubt, but we're past the point of no return. We know that this disease can be improved. Now we need to get to the point where we can improve it in a larger fraction of patients and more quickly. Very good. All right, uh, Scott, what's the best way for people to find out more? You know, if they suspect they have a problem, you know, they should go to their, you know, I guess, general practitioner and, and go from there. But if they want to learn more, then so what? Wanna, Yeah, so there are, there are a couple of professional associations. Uh, the American Liver Foundation is a great resource. It's really patient-directed, um, and they have lots of information. Um, the, our Mount Sinai website has quite a bit as well in the liver division. And the AASLD, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, has a very informative website. And uh, so those are three good places to start. Uh, Most institutions have some information on their web pages as well. And there are other professional associations that are, and patient-based associations that are also beginning to uh, develop information on their websites as well. Um, There's uh, something called the Fatty Liver Foundation, that's a patient-run organization that also has quite a bit of information. So um, more and more ways to get information. Uh, certainly, it's always prudent to start with your doctor and let them make an assessment of whether uh, you have fatty liver and what additional studies are appropriate. But certainly, all patients want to read more, and Google is a handy way to get started. But I would direct them directly to the ALF, the Fatty Liver Foundation, the ASLD, the Mount Sinai website and uh, other reputable websites. I would not encourage uh, websites that that, uh, promote natural and herbal treatments. Those can be very dangerous or commercial websites from companies that are trying to sell supplements. They should stick to reputable websites that are, you know, by uh, well-respected professional organizations. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Scott, thanks for taking the time and I, I appreciate you coming. Pleasure to be here. Best of luck to you and your listeners. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.